You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. The Western Golf Association may not be well known to the average golfer, especially if you live on the East or West Coast, but it happens to be one of the oldest and most respected organizations in the game of golf. The Western Golf Association, or WGA, was founded in 1899 by a small number of Chicago-area golf clubs to promote the sport. And as an aside for golf snobs on the East Coast, the Chicago Golf Club is the oldest 18-hole golf course in the United States. Shinnecock Hills was established a year earlier in 1892, but Shinnecock was only 12-hole course until 1894. The WGA now has more than 400 member clubs across the nation and is a sponsor of a number of amateur and PGA Tour events, notably the BMW Championship. But the crown jewel of the Western Golf Association, and one of the reasons why it is so highly regarded, is its Evans Scholarship Foundation, which since 1930 has provided full four-year college scholarships to nearly 11,000 deserving caddies, totaling more than $385 million in scholarship costs. The Evans Scholarship Foundation currently has 985 and soon to be 1,000 students enrolled in 19 major universities across the United States. But these facts just scratch the surface of the great work this organization has done and continues to do for the game of golf and for society in general. And Golfia is honored today to be speaking with Mr. John Keskowski, who joined WGA ESF in 1998 and has served as its president and CEO for the past eight years. John's going to talk about his career path in golf, give us a better understanding of his organization, and provide some guidance for people who might be seeking a similar career. I've not spoken with John or met him in advance of this interview, but sometimes you can gain insights into who a person is, not by what's on their resume, but rather by how they behave in casual, unrehearsed situations. So if you dig deeply enough on the internet, you'll find a YouTube video with John featured as a victim of the Ice Bucket Challenge. It was such a viral fundraising sensation for ALS about five years ago. And during that period, we all witnessed dozens of ice-pouring videos. But here's what struck me about John's ice bucket experience. Most people about to be dunked either wore bathing suits or shorts and a T-shirt. John took his dunking in a jacket and tie, looking like he just stepped out of a board meeting. And most people who were dunked had a small bucket of ice containing mostly not water, mostly ice, resulting in minimal soaking. But John's dunking involved what looked like a 30-gallon garbage can that took two people to lift and that delivered a bona fide soaking. So here's what that said to me, especially involving a guy with the title of president and CEO. John is all in, who does nothing halfway, and who's got to be a great sport and someone who's fun to work with. So John, whether or not I've got your pay correctly, I'm sure that you've dried off since then. And welcome to Golf Yeah. Gordon, well, what a very nice introduction. It's my pleasure to be here today. Yeah, the Ice Bucket Challenge uh, brings back a memory that maybe I'd rather soon forget. Uh, (laughs) That was a lot of water, and I think we ruined that sport coat. Well, you were a great sport, I got to tell you. Again, it said something to me about you. 
So I was hoping, John, that if we could start off with just, you know, your backstory, a little bit about your connection to the game of golf and maybe a few highlights along your career path. Sure, absolutely. You know, I'll cover some of the history before I start with Western golf and in 1998, which was a great opportunity for me. But Gordon, I grew up in suburban Milwaukee, town called Greendale, Wisconsin, which nice, great place to grow up. Not a lot of golf going on in Wisconsin at that time because the season was pretty short. You know, it's, you know, playing basically June, July, and August. But I was a public golf course player, learned the game from my father, and um, played on the high school team. Played in a couple of amateur tournaments, but I would not say I had any kind of illustrious career in golf. I was a grew up a, generally a sports fan, played a lot of different sports and activities, and ended up going to school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and had a just a really great experience there, and graduated and ended up moving to Chicago and worked in public accounting for a firm called Coopers and Libran. And, I've heard uh, of them. <laughs> yeah, they were part of the big eight accounting yeah. ter- firms back then. And I soon realized that it was a great firm. It was a wonderful opportunity. I learned a lot. But riding the rails every day in Chicago wearing a suit and tie, I knew that wasn't going to be for me long term. And I had developed a you know, a love of sports. And I was maybe naive enough to think that I could pursue a career in something that I loved. And I really found a lot of interest in. So I found out a program that was kind of new at the time. It was called um, sports management. So you could get a master's degree in sports management, which only about three universities at the time offered such a program. And this would have been 1991 or 92. And one of the programs happened to be at the St. Thomas University down in Miami, Florida. So uh, quit my job, enrolled in grad school, got a degree in sports management, a master's degree in sports management. But during the day, I got my real experience working during the day at the University of Miami, worked in their marketing department, worked as an assistant coach for their golf team, and really learned the ins and outs of the sports business, what it took to get involved, how you really had to dedicate your life to just building connections through different jobs and different activities. And that experience landed me my first job with the Carolinas PGA section, running tournaments throughout North and South Carolina. I ended up leaving that position. I worked for the American Junior Golf Association in the mid-90s. I worked there for six years as a tournament director, a director of development, helping raise money and selling sponsorships. And it was really kind of a cool experience for me because I got to deal with a lot of great young players, people like Tiger Woods and Charlie Howell and Matt Kuchar and Bubba Watson and Grace Park and Kelly Booth, great junior and amateur players that... I ended up dealing with a lot of these same players when I went to the Western Golf Association in 98. So I'm going to go to the Western Golf Association fully expecting that I would only be here probably for a couple years. I really wanted to get professional golf on my resume. And at the time, the WJ ran the Western Open. Well, I soon realized after working here, I love the organization. It's great people. It's in a great town, the city of Chicago. I really enjoyed the experience, but I thought, you know, I would be moving on to something else. And lo and behold, my boss at the time, he left to take a startup position and really was the first executive director of the Tiger Woods Foundation. I subsequently got his job as the tournament director of the Western Golf Association. And then ultimately, 10 years later, I ended up being named the successor to the executive director, um, a guy named Don Johnson who retired, they appointed me his successor in in 2010. So I'm a perfect example of right place, right time. Well, 
More than luck, John. And you are exactly, your story, which I think is great and inspirational, is exactly the type of listener that, that listens to Golfia podcast are people who are trying to think of ways to either you know, shift a career to golf or start a golf business. And you've earned, you know, what you have today because you took the risk early on. You knew you weren't happy and you did something about it. I think that's great. Well, and it's, you know, I was in a fortunate spot in my life that I didn't have a lot of commitments. You know, I was single, living in a, sharing an apartment in Chicago, and it was pretty easy for me to cut the cord and try something different. And I kind of look back and I was pretty lucky to get involved in a, with a degree like a sports management degree because, now you look at universities like Northwestern and Stanford. Those type of universities are offering master's degree in sports management where, as I said, I think back when I did, there were probably three schools, UMass, St. Thomas, and University of Ohio. But, you know, your accounting background probably has been of great help to you in your current position because you you know every part of the business, which is – and the financial part is critical. It didn't hurt. You know, Gordon would – Big firms like that teach you how to do is they teach you how to act professionally. They teach you how to interact with people. They show you how things should be run. So no, I'm not complaining at all. I mean, I think a lot of successful people in life maybe start out as with an accounting background and some financial background, and they can parlay that into whatever they're doing in their future lives. Well, it's a great story, and thanks for sharing it with us. Can you talk a little bit about the WGA? I mean, it's the oldest golf-related organization in the country. Can you give us a little snapshot of quick historical overview of the scope of its activity, for example? The Western Golf Association, as you mentioned, was started in 1899, which it was really started by a group of Chicago clubs. And I get this question all the time. If you're based in Chicago, why are you called the Western Golf Association? You know, shouldn't you be in San Francisco or something like that? But if you think about 1899, the United States Golf Association was started in 1895, and some people viewed that as really being dominated by East Coast golfers and East Coast administrators, and so they wanted to have a voice in the game. The group of Chicago golfers and Chicago clubs wanted to have a voice in the game, so they started the Western Golf Association. And if you think about 1899, Chicago was the West, basically. Right. The, the railroad stopped there. Right. So Western Golf Association was started in 1899 with the purpose of really running championship golf. The Western Amateur, the Western Open, started in 1899, held at the Glenview Club in Chicago. And really, that's what we did. We ran championship golf. We started the Western Junior Championship, which is the oldest junior championship, in 1916. In the early part of our history, we really focused on championship golf and one of the great players at the turn of the century, of course, was Chick Evans. Our association developed a great relationship with Chick, him being a resident of Chicago, multiple-time champion of the Western Open and the Western Am, and really created a bond with Chick and created you know, something that's his legacy is the Evans Scholars Foundation. But we really, as an organization, that's our roots, tournament golf, championship golf, and we're proud to say now the Western Golf Association has kind of morphed into two ships, if you will. We're about championship golf, which is near and dear to our heart, but we're also about scholarships as well, the Evans Scholars Foundation. Now, I will admit that I knew very little about Chick Evans before I did my research on your organization. Why do you think it is? I mean, he was in the Bobby Jones era, and Bobby Jones, of course, is a legend in golf. Why do you think it is that Chick is not as well known? Because Chick certainly made as much of and maybe more of a an impact on the game than, than Bobby Jones ever did? You know, that's a great question. I think, you know, just to give some of the listeners a little background on Chick Evans, he was a great player. He was actually the first person 
to win the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur in the same year, in 1916. And Bobby Jones didn't do that until 1930. So... Chick played in a, I would say that Chick was in a little bit different era than Bobby. Chick was kind of winding down his, the really the, I guess the heydays of his career when Bobby Jones came on the scene in the late 20s and into the early 30s. So they weren't exact contemporaries, but that's a hard question for me to answer. It's um, maybe the national press wasn't involved as much, you know, the 1900s, early 1900s and 1910s as they were when Mr. Jones you know, set all his great records. But leave no doubt, I mean, I think one of Chick's interesting accomplishments was he played in 50 consecutive U.S. amateur championships, which I think is a record that will never be broken. Yeah. How long did he live, do you know? He lived till 1979 when he passed away, and he would have been in his 70s. Oh, okay. Now, his connection with the scholarship is, my understanding is, he wanted to keep his amateur status, so his mother took the money and put it for scholarships or at some later date? Yeah, that's basically when he won the USAM and the US Open in the same year, he was approached by a number of different companies to do endorsement deals. And he wanted to remain an amateur golfer. So in lieu of, instead of taking the money to do a series of instructional records, he put it in a trust so he could keep his amateur status. And Chick was a caddy. Growing up as a kid, as many players were, that was a gateway to to be a golfer, was to be a caddy. Chick was a caddy. He went to Northwestern for a year and really had to drop out of school because he couldn't afford the tuition. And he said to his mom, I I don't want that to happen to any future caddies. So they ended up starting what's now the Evans Scholars Foundation, using that money that was earned through the series of recording sessions he did about golf. Yeah. To your point, it was interesting this weekend to watch Phil Mickelson. You know, the coin he was using to mark his ball was his grandfather's, who had been a caddy at Pebble Beach, you know, many decades before. So you're right about, you know, caddies being, you know, the forerunners of pro golf in many ways. Now, that his money ran out at, at a certain period of time, and, and the organization needed to continue to feed this beast. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you had to go about attracting donations and substantial donations to support that many scholars. So when you came in eight years ago, the WGA was in a tough spot in that it was the country was coming out of a tough period and donations were down and the numbers of scholars was down. So can you talk about some of the things you did to to revitalize the program? Because where you are now is quite a ways from where you were. You know, looking back, I was I don't know what I was thinking, taking a job coming out of a great recession, right? But I had been here for 12 years. I had been with the organization, so I knew a lot about it. I knew we had had tremendous success on all fronts. But like any charity, we were concerned going through the coming out of the great recession because 100% of the money that we raise and in tune, the money that we spend on tuition to educate young men and women is raised from individuals. So we were susceptible to, you know, people feeling like their own net worth might have been affected and maybe they're not feeling as or maybe they're not as willing to be able to make charitable gifts. So we were concerned, but we wanted to dream bigger and better because we knew that the case for support, in other words, educating young men and women around the country who have caddied was great. And so I think what we really focused on was telling our story a little better. When I We used to say that the Evans Scholars Foundation was the greatest untold story in golf, which 
sometimes I still hear it, and it always kind of drove me crazy because it's a great story, and it should be told. And I think we did a better job of kind of telling our story, making sure that we got into markets that didn't know our story as well. We've always been a predominantly Midwest-based organization, but we really have had Evan scholars from virtually all parts of the country for a long time. And so uh, we put together some a really solid, I think, communications plan on how to tell our story. And then we also developed a strategy on how to increase the number of kids in school and grow our program. And people, I think that really resonated with individuals. They want to be involved in a charity that has big plans and is willing to dream big. And I think that's what we did. And so far, so good. We still have big plans and it seems to be working pretty well. That's great. It's a great success story. And I agree with you. I think the story still needs to be told. You know, because I think maybe on the coasts, the east and west coast, where you don't have as many or as much of a presence, I think that's huge room for opportunity for growth on both sides of the country for you. I agree. I'm not going to debate you on that, Gordon. It really is almost the potential of what we do is almost limitless. If you just look at our organization every year for the past seven or eight years, we have a record number of applicants apply for the Evans Scholarship. And so that tells us there's a lot of need out there. And we're trying to fulfill all that need and help young people get a college education. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the factors that you use to uh, select the Evans Scholars? Because it's got to be a tough job to to pick one over another, and it's probably the most difficult thing you do. It is tough. It's a competitive process. So, for instance, this past year we had over 800 applicants apply for the Evans Scholarship, and we selected 285. So, you know, that's a roughly one third of the kids that applied got the scholarship, but that means, you know, we had to make some decisions. And the core criteria to be an Evans Scholar, really, there's, you've got to have four main things going for you. You have to be a caddy, number one. You have to have financial need. Everyone has some kind of financial need, but it really comes down to degree and need. College is expensive. And, you know, it's really hard for families these days to be able to afford the cost of, you know, four-year education at the outstanding universities that we're proud to partner with. But certainly families need to have financial need to qualify for the Evans Scholarship. You have to have a strong academic record. And then you have to be active in your communities, either your school community, your social network community, but you have to have outstanding character and be active in your community. So, you know, we weigh all of our applicants based on those four core criteria. And ultimately, you know, we try to select the best candidates for the Evans Scholarship, which is a a four-year scholarship that covers the cost of tuition and housing at one of our partner universities. God, that's got to be a dream come true for these kids. Just amazing. You know, I wish, quite frankly, Gordon, I knew about it. I didn't know what, as I told you, I grew up in a public golf course. I didn't even know, really know what a caddy was. And it really is life-changing. If you're fortunate enough to find out about caddying, that in itself is a great summer job, right? There's no better summer job for kids than carrying a bag. You know, getting to spend four hours with um, adults that you probably would never talk to and learn how to act and learn how to handle yourself. But if you're fortunate enough to receive the Evans Scholarship, that's kind of the cherry on top. You had a great summer job, but then you're going to earn a scholarship that's going to lead to bigger and better things. It's more than a cherry. It's probably the whole hot fudge sundae. <laughs> That's <you know>? right. <laughs> That's right. So are personal interviews involved in the selection at all? It would be similar to you know most application processes. You apply online and you, there's various things that you have to provide from an information standpoint. And once you make it back past the various levels of screening, if you will, the final step in the process for an Evans Scholar is to appear for an oral interview 
in front of a selection committee. And that selection committee could be as small as three people, could be as large as 100 people. And if you think about it, it's a kind of like a press conference. The scholar applicant is up at the front of the room and answers questions from adults for 10 to 15 minutes. Questions could be personal in nature, tell us about your caddy experience, tell us about your favorite class. But it's a pretty powerful experience, and it's almost like a rite of passage for Evan Scholars. Everyone who's ever received a scholarship does an oral interview, and there's some really great stories about the kids that didn't think they could do it, and they did it, and they came out on the other end just you know for the better for it. Wow. Talk about a test of fire. <laughs> if an applicant is turned down, can they apply in subsequent years? Is there any restriction on that? You can. It's, as I mentioned, Gordon, the Evans Scholarship's a four-year scholarship to provide tuition and housing. But And you typically what you do is you apply going into your senior year. So the applications become available in August prior to your senior year of high school. We ask you to complete the application towards the end of October of your senior year. And hopefully you're selected an Evans Scholar in March of your, by April 1st of your senior year. If you're not successful that first go round, we encourage you to reapply. So there are several, about 10% of our scholars earn three-year Evans scholarships. So in other words, they receive an Evans scholarship going into their sophomore year of college. Oh, okay. So you have 19, really, I think, world-class universities that participate mostly in the Midwest, with the exception maybe of Penn State. Are there plans to increase the number of schools on the East and West Coasts? It's interesting, Gordon, you know, on the East Coast, definitely. But I'll first talk about the West Coast. When Chick Evans in the, not the latter part of his life, but certainly after the bulk of his competitive career was open, did a lot of barnstorming tours to try to grow the game, maybe promote new golf courses. And in the 40s and 50s, he did a lot of barnstorming on the West Coast. So he did a lot of exhibitions in Washington and Oregon, and he convinced those clubs to start caddy programs and ultimately become involved with the Evans Scholars Program. So we have had Evans Scholars coming from Washington and Oregon since the 60s. And we actually were really proud to say that we recently opened an Evans Scholar House in this past September at the University of Washington. And that's in addition to the Evans Scholar House that we opened at the University of Oregon the year before that. So even though there aren't a ton of golf courses in Washington and Oregon that have caddy programs, there's enough there to support two houses and having a world-class resort that is really one of the, probably the largest caddy program in the world at Bandon Dunes doesn't hurt. But we do have plans to grow on the East Coast as well. We've been in discussions with several potential universities and we view Penn State as a world-class university for our program. We view it as an opportunity to use that as a gateway, if you will, to the East Coast. And hopefully we'll partner with one or two or maybe three universities on the East Coast in the near future so we can add the number of kids that we have in school on the East Coast as well. Okay. Now talk to me a little bit about the Evans Scholarship House. I mean, I I was unaware of this. Your scholars all live together at whatever university they're attending. It's almost like a fraternity. Little bit. We don't love that term because it's men and women living together. <laughs> okay. But no, it's a good analogy for those of us that weren't Evan scholars. Sometimes it's hard to get your your arms around the idea of, you know, what is a scholarship house? But our Evan scholars live together in community all four years. So an Evan scholar house might be as small as 40 students, might be as large as 120 students. But you live in the scholar house for all four years. You grow 
you develop bonds with your fellow Evan scholars that, quite frankly, last a, a lifetime. And we really feel strongly that the communal living aspect of our program is really kind of the glue that binds it all together. You know, it's we feel like that our scholars are very successful in college. They show this through things like their great grades they receive in college, the fact that they graduate, 95% of our Evans scholars graduate in four years. We think that this idea of communal living is really key to their success. Yeah. Is there a success story, John, that you can think of involving a, an Evans scholar? Just a quick one that you think of all the time that inspires you that you could share? You know, Gord, they're literally thousands of stories. And we've had over 10,800 young men and women go through the program. And, you know, the ones that really just are incredible as you sit through these interviews and you wonder, you know, how did this kid do it? You know, we've had stories about kids that were homeless in growing up, you know, either mom or dad was a single parent. They went through the recession, lost their job. The family ended up being evicted from their home. They ended up in, ended up homeless on the street and literally got connected to caddying. And this one young man in particular from Michigan that he viewed it as an opportunity to not only get out of his situation, in other words, get out of the homeless shelter, but make some money. And he used caddying as a springboard to success in life, even though he applied for the Evans Scholarship after caddying and he didn't get the Evans Scholarship. He ended up going to Michigan State University, and he'd walk by the Evans Scholar house every day his freshman year. And he said, boy, if I'm not going to reapply for this scholarship, I'm going to improve my grades. I'm going to reapply for this scholarship, and I'm going to earn it. And he ended up getting the scholarship the following year, graduated, has a great job, and his family's back on their feet, and and they're doing really well. Oh, that's great. You know what? That's got to be a perk for you. I mean, few jobs in the world have the kind of satisfaction that I'm sure you get from those kind of stories. It's got to be a, a big part of the satisfaction you get from coming in every day. It is for a lot of people, you know, me included in our organization. And you actually get to see the results of what you're doing firsthand. So a lot of our supporters are golfers and they take caddies. And I can tell you a lot of different stories about golfers that have mentored young men and women on the golf course as caddies, encourage them to dream bigger. Then they go through the process of getting the Evans Scholarship or interviewing for the Evans Scholarship and receiving the scholarship. And then going back to, you know, they graduate as Evans Scholars and maybe someday they go back to that same club where they caddied. They become a member and sometimes they even become like things like club president. To me, that's the true circle, right? That's uh, someone that used uh, the opportunities to a springboard for success in life. Yeah. Now, most clubs that use caddies are private and exclusive. So is there a socioeconomic gap that makes it tough to recruit youth, especially from, you know, families that are less well off? Are they reluctant to enter a world where that might be a little bit intimidating for them? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I think the bigger issue is trying to figure out how you introduce the opportunity to people. You know, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, even the 70s, caddying was prolific. Most clubs had caddy programs. A lot of public golf courses had caddy programs. And with the introduction of things like the golf cart, like the residential golf course communities, you know, the caddy program started to go away. But they've really held their ground in traditional golf 
tradition-rich areas like Chicago, like the great New York metropolitan area, like some of the great clubs around the country. They've really held steady in terms of having caddy programs. And I would say that, sure, there's for a young person that doesn't know the game, that maybe feels a little intimidated, it might be tough to show up in that caddy yard on that first day. But by and large, I think when they realize the opportunity that's there for them, in other words, to work with some great players and carry a bag for four hours and they get paid at the end of the day, I think a lot of times that that outweighs any nervousness they might have. But I would say that, yeah, it is an issue recruiting kids in today's day and age, getting kids that want to work hard and want to show up and go out and work every day and carry you know, members clubs. That is a challenge that I'm sure a lot of businesses have, if you will, to try to recruit young people to work. Yeah. So, but the WGA has two programs, the Caddy Academy and the Carry the Game program that are designed to essentially expand caddying in underserved communities. Can you talk a little bit about those two initiatives? Absolutely. There are two programs, and that's what we do as an organization. The Western Golf Association and Evan Scholars Foundation wants to promote caddying. We want to help caddy programs be sustainable. And we realize that one of the biggest obstacles to caddying is your geography. In other words, where you live. If you don't live by a golf course that has a caddy program, there's a pretty good chance that you're not going to caddy. So taking that into account and also taking into account that we wanted to see more young ladies caddy. Certainly, we wanted to have more young women involved in the Evans Scholars Program and created more of a diverse environment. We started something called the Caddy Academy, which started seven years ago as a small program with 10 young ladies that moved to Chicago for the summer. So in the beginning of June, they would move to Chicago. They'd be from all over the country. They'd move to Chicago. And every day, we would take them out to a local country club with a caddy program and get them caddying. So removing the geography from the equation. In other words, now that they could caddy, they could check that off the list in terms of becoming a potential Evan Scholar. We thought they already had the other qualifications to be an Evan Scholar. In other words, they had financial need. They had excellent grades, and ultimately they had outstanding character, but we needed to try to get them caddying. So this program that started seven years ago with 10 girls has grown into over 100 young ladies, young men and women that come to Chicago every summer, and we get them caddying. So they live in some private residential dormitory, if you will. So it's part of a private high school that has a dormitory. So we rent that out for the summer, and the girls live together. The boys live in our Evan Schuyler house at Northwestern University. And it's a pretty intense seven-week program where they caddy every day, and at night they do things like they have fun, number one, but they also take classes on ACT prep, they take classes on nutrition, they take classes on personal finance, and we also take them around the city of Chicago and show them the sights, get them to experience things that maybe they never would. And they're literally young men and women from all over the country that come to Chicago every summer to be a part of this Caddy Academy, and we've had over 40 young men and women go through this program and receive the Evans Scholarship. Oh, that's great. What about the Carry the Game program? What's that all about? Yeah, the Carry the Game program is, think, you know, it's an advocacy group that really is going to promote the idea that caddying is a way to grow the number of players in this country. So, you know, a big issue is access. And, you know, we teach kids, maybe we expose them to the game of golf or we they take some lessons. But, you know, how do they actually get out and play golf? Well, caddying is a great way to do that. You know, a lot of the golf courses that um, have caddy programs allow their players to play, allow their caddies to play, either on Mondays or sometimes during the week after the, the course is kind of slowed down. 
But we view Carry the Game as an opportunity to spread the word about caddying, have it kind of recognized in the game of golf as a, a way to introduce players to the game. And it's certainly a way for young men and women to get other opportunities in life. So to better themselves through education, not only through the Evans Scholars Program, but through the many scholarship programs that are offered to caddies around the country by various organizations. Yeah. Do you have statistics on how many private clubs actually have caddying programs? Is there any data out there on that? Yeah, there is. Actually, that's part of Carry the Game. So the Carry the Game is a brand new initiative. It's only been around for about 11 months. And our first step was to establish a baseline of caddy programs. We need to figure out how many caddy programs are out there, how many caddies are there, both adult and young people that are caddy. And so we're in the process right now of putting together all that data. So we'll create a baseline of information and see if we truly are growing the number of caddies that are in this country and the number of caddy programs that clubs have through our Carry the Game efforts. Is that a tough thing to do to get a club to if they don't have one, to initiate a caddy, a formal caddy program? You know, Gordon, it is. I think that, you know, it's hard for a club to start a caddy program if they don't have a real culture of walking and if they don't have a real maybe a culture of having had a caddy program. You know, it's clubs are struggling. Golf course facilities are always interested in revenue streams, and golf carts provide a big revenue stream for clubs. So that's hard to overcome, but we feel pretty strongly that, Caddy programs can be anything you want them to be. You know, they don't have to be 80 kids showing up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday with the hope that they get out sometime that day. With technology, things like Facebook and texting and certain websites and apps that are available, you know, kids can show up pretty easily and know that they're going to get out. So caddy programs could be much smaller and more efficient. Yeah. I was at the PGA show last month. And there are a number of new apps that are designed to make the caddy, you know, the caddy management program much more efficient for both sides, for both the club and caddies. So I think that that's going to be an important part of caddy growth in the years to come. So I got a question for you. Are you aware of Charity Navigator? Absolutely. Sure. Do you know that you're ranked in terms of its integrity extremely high? In terms of accountability and transparency? It certainly is one of the things we track. And and for your listeners... Gordon, you know, Charity Navigator is is a website or a, a service that basically tracks charitable organizations on a number of different metrics. And, and I don't know how many, but I know they track a lot of different charities from all across the board in this country. And certainly it's websites like that are a tool that you monitor and you look at and because some donors are interested in, in how an organization is run. They should be. They're investing in an organization and its leadership to make sure that they're being proper stewards of their donations. Yeah. Well, something you should be proud of. I mean, it's one thing I always consider when I'm asked to give money, how much of that money actually gets to the, the you know, the people that need the money versus the administration. And I think the fact you rank so highly, it says that uh, it's happening there, you know, that the people are that need the money are getting the money. So congratulations. We're efficient. We're proud of it. We've always has been, Gordon. You know, it's, you know, the people that have been involved with this organization for much longer than I have, either as an employee or a volunteer, they should all be proud of the foundation that they laid and were able to do what we do in a pretty efficient manner. Yeah. A couple more questions. One is on a lighter note. I'm curious to know how the town of Gulf, Illinois, got its name. I mean, that's the town that where you reside. Uh, not you personally, but the organization, correct? That is true. We is there are, a story uh, behind that? You know, there is. I've never seen this actually proven, but the story that we go with is, so the village of golf is 
for your listeners that are familiar with Chicago, is in the North Shore of Chicago, so in the North Shore suburbs. If there were no traffic, it's about 20 minutes from downtown Chicago. So back in before the automobile, obviously, a lot of the invention of the automobile, a lot of people took the train. And we're very fortunate to be, our property is very close to a golf club called the Glenview Club. And the Glenview Club was, as I mentioned earlier, the original host of the Western Open and the Western Amateur in 1899. Fantastic old golf course. And the gentleman that owned the train station at the time used to have the train stop right outside of our office, which this was way before our office was ever built. He used to have the train stop, and there would be a horse and buggy there to take him to the Glenview Club. So the stop became known as golf. He was getting off to play golf, and the stop has grown into a small village of, I think it's close to a 1,000 people live in the village of golf. We're actually the only commercial, if you will, I'm using air quotes, we're the only kind of commercial entity in the village of golf. Okay. Well, that, that's interesting. I wondered about it. I had never been aware of the name of the town, and uh, now I know how it came about. And by the way, the Western Golf Open is what subsequently became, or is now, the BMW Championship, right? Correct. That's right. We moved to the, the name became the BMW Championship in 2007, when the tournament became part of the playoffs for the FedEx Cup. Okay. One last question. Do you have any career advice for individuals who might be interested in either working for an organization like yours or someone who wants to get involved in the Evans Scholarship Foundation on a volunteer basis? Two different questions, but... Yeah, I mean, I do get that question a lot from young people, especially that are... A lot of times I'll get kids that play in our tournaments, either our Western Junior or Western Amateur, and they say, how do I get to work for an organization like yours? And I say, well, if you want to play a lot of golf don't work for us. Go be in the insurance business or be in a financial planner or something. But I would say that, you know, if certainly knowledge of golf helps, knowledge of any sport helps if you want to work in the sports industry. But really what stands out is your passion for what you do, your willingness to do anything. You know, it is to start at the bottom or start at an entry level position or an unpaid internship, get your foot in the door. And you know, pieces of paper are when someone sends in a resume, it's, you know, a lot of those look alike. But if you have the opportunity to get your foot in the door with an organization, be it a baseball team or a football team or a golf tournament and work as a intern or work as a volunteer just to get started, that experience and the contacts that you'll make are invaluable for the rest of your life. And it's hard to get in the sports business. It really is because the sports business is, doesn't pay a lot. Entry level positions doesn't they don't pay a lot in comparison to other more traditional businesses, quite frankly, because there's a lot of people that want to get in. But once you get in and once you get that first job or that first internship, it's amazing how many doors will open up because you have that experience on your resume and you kind of you know, you're guilty by association. You've been involved in the sports industry and others want to hire you. But I would say from a volunteer standpoint, that for our organization, we're looking for people that have a passion for either golf tournaments, that they want to work at our golf tournaments. And I'm blown away by the passion that people have at our BMW Championship. We have over 2,000 volunteers that actually pay to volunteer at the tournament. And that's professional golf model. They're basically paying for their uniform for the week. But in return, they get a chance to be at the tournament and they get some other perks. But the fact of the matter is tournament golf couldn't run without volunteers. So if you're interested in golf, as a volunteer, I would say figure out either 
from what professional tournaments are by you, they always need volunteers. Maybe what golf associations are by you, they always need volunteers too, helping them run their tournaments. But from an Evan Scholar's perspective, we're always looking for volunteers that are generous, that can help us fund our mission of sending young people to college on a scholarship, but also are willing to be advocates for the Evan Scholar's program in their social networks, their professional networks, and maybe even if they're fortunate enough to be a member at a country club or a facility that has caddy programs, we're willing to be an advocate for the Evan Scholar's program at their golf facility as well. And if they're really inspired by your work, they can always go to your website and write a check. Correct. We take those. We also take <laughs> okay. credit cards too, Gordon. Okay. Okay. So in all seriousness, we're lucky. Yeah. We've got an incredibly generous group of donors that are literally throughout this country and the world that think providing education for young caddies is a pretty worthy cause. Yeah. Well, John, this has been great. I really appreciate the time you've given us. And I hope that this effort will you know, spread the word about the good work that you do, because it's certainly deserving of, of people knowing about it. Because I've been impressed just the small amount of research I did on the organization. I was unaware of what you do and the great work that you've accomplished over the many years. So thank you. Well, Gordon, I appreciate you having me. I really do. Anytime I get an opportunity to talk about our organization, I'm tickled to do it. So thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.